So please open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Tonight we're going to begin at verse 129. And again, that sounds strange, doesn't it? Saying 129 about verses in a chapter in the Bible. But of course, we're dealing with Psalm 119, which is famous as the longest psalm in the Bible and the, the, the longest or the, the biggest chapter in the entire Bible. Again, I just want to remind you a little bit about the structure of this great psalm. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and there are 22 sections to Psalm 119. Each section matches with a corresponding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, You know, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, as it goes through. Now, in the Hebrew, when you're at a section corresponding to that letter, every line in that section begins with that letter. And so this psalm, this longest psalm, this biggest chapter of the Bible, it's remarkable because it has one great glorious theme, and I would call it the greatness and the glory of God's word. So tonight, the first section we're going to look at is with the Hebrew letter Pe, and it begins at verse 129, where we read, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. So here the psalmist is once again declaring his wonder and his pleasure in the word of God. He looks at the word of God and he says it's wonderful. Now not just merely in the sense of saying that something that would delight us. I'm sure you got some wonderful Christmas presents a couple of weeks ago, right? And oh, this is wonderful that I received this, some electronic gadget or some little thing you got. You just thought it's wonderful that you received it. But that's not exactly the sense of the ancient Hebrew word that we find translated wonderful here in the New King James Version. No, the idea behind wonderful there really has more of the idea of miraculous. In old English and in other languages as well, the idea of a wonder is a miracle. And so there's really a sense of that he's saying here in verse 129, your testimonies are wonderfully miraculous. And they're supernatural, they're they're superhuman. They're supernatural in their nature, in that they're free from error, and they're supernatural in their effects as they instruct, as they elevate, as they strengthen, and as they comfort the soul. It's really remarkable, this book that we're giving our attention to. Isn't it strange what we're doing right here tonight? Here we are gathered together on a Wednesday night when you could be doing many other things, and here we are looking together at a book that's thousands of years old. Some 3,000 years ago, this psalm was written. And here we are, not, not only are we reading, but I, I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're looking at this. And, and it, it, it's food for you. It, it, it engages you mentally, of course. But spiritually, God does something in you and through you as you give your attention. This is wonderful. This is a miracle. It shows that the power and the effectiveness of the Word of God goes far beyond just our intellectual apprehension of it. Your testimonies are wonderful. I like what Adam Clark said about this. He said, there is a height, a length, a depth, and a breadth in thy word and thy testimonies that is truly astonishing. And on this account, my soul loves them and I deeply study them. The more I study, the more light and salvation I obtain. So he says, your testimonies are wonderful and in the sense of being miraculous and supernatural. And then he says, therefore, my soul keeps them. The the enduring, 
abiding delight that he had in the word of God, it prompted from him greater obedience. And this was more than obedience in outward actions, which is something good, right? This was obedience in the soul. Did you notice that? Therefore, my soul keeps them. You know, it is entirely possible for a person to keep some semblance of outward obedience with their actions, but it's not a soul obedience. But the psalmist said, no, your word is so wonderful, it's so powerful that my soul wants to be obedient to you and to your word. Going on with that idea, he continues on now into verse 130, where he says, The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Now, here he's repeating an idea that he stated previously in this great psalm. The idea that God's word brings light. God's word makes things more clear, not less clear. Isn't that wonderful? It brings clarity to our lives, not confusion. You see, when the word came in, light and clarity came into our lives. It's a very interesting word that he uses there for entrance there in verse 130. It's a, it's a word that can actually have a double meaning. If you pronounce it one way, it can mean a door. If you pronounce it another way, it can mean revelation. And actually, this is a very interesting word that came from the ideas when, when the ancient Hebrews were really just pretty much Bedouin shepherds all across the, the uh, promised land and that sort of area. And you're talking about Abrahamic and, and uh, afterward times, the, the times of the patriarchs. You see, the idea in this double meaning is simply this, is that when they lived in tents, the one window, the one opening you had to the tent was the door. And so when you opened the door, light came into the tent. And so door, light, revelation, those ideas were all connected together. And so he says here, your word is wonderful. It brings light. But then he has another line there in verse 130. It says, it gives understanding to the simple. I praise God for that tonight. There may be some geniuses here in our midst, and I hope you feel welcome. I hope you're, <laughs> you're happy to be here with us. But you know, a lot of us just simple people, we're very happy that the word of God speaks to us, aren't we? You see, the word of God is so clear and so light-giving that even the simple find understanding. It does not take great intellect or mental powers to benefit from God's word. Now, let me tell you something. If you do have great intellect, if you do have mighty mental powers, a wonderful application for that intellect is after the word of God. And some of the most brilliant men of history have applied their great intellect to understanding and explaining and researching the word of God. And they've done it to great benefit. But here's the great thing. You don't have to be a genius to figure out the word of God. Isn't it great that he should make it so plain, so simple for us? I like what one old Puritan commentator named Bridges said. He said this, so astonishing is the power of this heavenly light that from any one page of this holy book, a child or even an idiot under heavenly teaching may draw more attention, more instruction, I should say, from the most, than the acute, most acute philosopher could ever attain from any other fountain of light. Now listen, those of us who love the simplicity of God's word, oftentimes we're derided. 
were seen as being low people and not very intellectual. Again, if you don't mind me quoting a little more, Spurgeon has a real gem on this idea. He says this, These simple-hearted ones are frequently despised, and their simplicity has another meaning infused into it so as to be made the theme of ridicule. But what does it matter? Those whom the world calls fools are among the truly wise if they are taught of God. So this is a beautiful principle, isn't it? Look at the word again. It gives understanding to the simple. Now, right there, that is a blessing for the simple, isn't it? God doesn't forget them. He hasn't made salvation or growth in godliness so complicated that simple people like you and I can't figure it out. No, no, no. Growth in godliness is not primarily a matter of the intellect. And so it's a blessing for the simple. But you know, it's also a promise for the simple. The simple people among us, we can approach God's word with utter confidence. We can expect God to give us understanding. I know some people, well, let me relate to you. Uh, a dear friend of mine, the pastor of the Calvary Chapel in Segan, uh, God has used him mightily there, Pastor Nick Long. He's spoken at this pulpit before. Some of you may remember him just recently this year. Nick was very fond of saying that before he read the Bible, there was only one book he had ever read before in his life. Green Eggs and Ham. (laughs) After that, the Bible was the first book that he ever read. And and he just rejoiced in the simplicity and the fact that he could understand it and that could have meaning for him and that could be a blessing to him. If Nick wouldn't mind me telling a story on him, oh, because it's such a great story. There was a great, oh, thank you for that permission. (laughs) When he was just a brand new, young, excited believer, he he heard a wonderful, wonderful Christian song that was going around at that time. It it was very popular and just wonderfully, it's it's called Our God Reigns. Maybe some of you remember that song. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of them who bring, the chorus goes, Our God Reigns, Our God Reigns. And as a young believer, Nick just loved that song. I mean, he had just come to the Lord. He was so excited. And he used to just shout it out in the congregation. But he found out that he had the words a little bit wrong. He thought the chorus was saying this, I've got brains. (laughs) And so he used to just shout it out, thanking God, I've got brains. I've got brains. (laughs) Well, isn't that what this verse is talking about? It simply says, it gives understanding to the simple. So listen, that is a great blessing for the simple. It's a great promise for the simple. But I'll tell you what as well, it's a responsibility for the simple. Hey, listen, they cannot make excuses for their average or less than average intellect or mental powers. They're still responsible to seek God in his word. And sometimes I think that those of us that, you know, look, we're just not geniuses or anything. We might excuse ourselves from that, right? Oh, well, studying the Bible, that's for the people who are really smart. No, you go back to his word because his word will tell you that it gives understanding to the simple. And because it does, even you and you and all of us here are simple folk here. We have a responsibility to seek God within his word. And then to show how passionately he sought after God, he goes on here in verse 131, where he says, I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. 
Because the word of God is light-giving and clear, it's so clear that even the simple can understand it. The psalmist wanted God's word like a thirsty animal pants after water. Have you ever seen a very thirsty animal? There's sort of a passion, a dedication, a drive in them, the panting after the water. That's how the psalmist was. He wanted it. He needed, he needed God's word like a thirsty animal longs for water. Now notice this. He acted upon that longing. He did something about it. He didn't just wish for understanding. He sought about it uh, diligently. Now verse 132. He says, Look upon me and be merciful to me as your custom is toward those who love your name. Direct my steps by your word and let no iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. I love these four verses because these four verses contain four requests that are rooted in the word of God. Look at the first request. It's right there in verse 132. The first request is, look upon me and be merciful to me. You could say that that's really two requests. First he says, God, look at me, and then God, be merciful to me. And the psalmist had reason to believe that God would answer, because he says so wonderfully in verse 132, as is your custom towards those who love your name. Isn't it comforting for you to know that God has a custom? God has a pattern of action. God has a way that he customarily acts towards those who love his name. And what is his custom? His custom is to look upon them, to give them his attention, and then to be merciful unto them. That promise is a very solid ground for bold, trusting prayer before God. I wouldn't be surprised if there's not a few people here tonight. You're going to make a note of that verse, and you're going to use it the next time. You're passionate in prayer before God. You're going to go before God, and you're going to do what I sometimes do. I'll hold my Bible up to God to show him the words from his own book. And you'll say this, Lord, you say that it's your custom to look upon me and to be merciful to me. So, Lord, I ask that you fulfill this according to your custom. Yes, Lord, bring your look to me. Listen, that shows the graciousness of our God, right? If God was angry at us, the last thing in the world you would want is his look, right? You know what that look is like, right? Can you remember that look from your parents? Can you remember that look from your teachers, right? You don't want that look, right? But God is so filled with grace and mercy to us that we love his look upon us. And we say, Lord, we're among those who love your name. Therefore, it's that first request in verse 132. Look upon me and be merciful to me. Now, in verse 133, there's the second request. He says, direct my steps by your word. You see, this explains what he wanted to do with the mercy that he received with God. Lord, show me your mercy. Look upon me. Give me your mercy so I can go out and do whatever I want to do. No. Give me your mercy so that my steps would be directed by your word. Lord, I want to take your mercy and use it to walk rightly before you. And the reason I want to walk before you or the way I would want to is look at what it says there in verse 133. And let no iniquity have dominion over me. No iniquity, not to have dominion over me. 
And I know there's many people today who want to direct their steps, but they want to direct their steps according to something else. Did you see what he said there? Direct my steps by your word. Now I ask you to look at your own life, your own heart. Have a little bit of self-introspection here and ask, is that true of you? Or do you give the, the answers many people would give today? How about this one? Direct my steps by my feelings. Direct my steps by my lusts. Direct my steps by my friends. Direct my steps by my parents. Direct my steps by my circumstances. Direct my steps by my fate. Direct my steps by my comfort or my entertainments. No, 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 no. He said, direct my steps by your word. And he knew that when he was in that place, that as it says at the end part of verse 133, let no iniquity have dominion over me. The psalmist was wise to understand that sin can come to have dominion over a man or a woman. And even in some ways, a man or a woman who has spiritual life within them. The Apostle Paul recognized this same danger. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, he said this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. To be brought under the power of something is for that thing to have some dominion over us. Friends, I I think that you probably know what this is like to some greater or lesser degree. Because sin, if it is unchecked, if it is unstopped, it will gain and hold dominion in my life. Now, first, it may be in a small or seemingly insignificant area. But that dominion will grow in size. It will grow in strength until my spiritual life is in serious compromise. I read something startling from an old commentator that was quoted by Charles Spurgeon. His name was Michael Bruce, but this is what he said. He said, I would rather be a prisoner to man all the days of my life than to be in bondage to sin for one day. Let this and not the other man rule over me, but let not sin have dominion over me. But you see, friends... When our steps are directed by the word of God, then we'll both avoid being under the dominion of sin and we can be freed from whatever dominion sin may have over us. And I would even say this, that in a New Testament context, we have an even greater grounds for confidence for this. Notice what it says here in verse, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 14. He says, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. So friends, here's the plain truth. We can overcome sin in the power of the Lord. Oh, I'm not preaching some doctrine of sinless perfection. No, no, no. That work of, of freedom from sin, it's not going to be completely realized until we're resurrected with the Lord himself. But you can ask yourself honestly, if sin has dominion over you, it's a dominion that the power of God's word can break. Now, the third request he makes is in verse 134. The first one was, look upon me and be merciful to me. The second was, direct my steps by your word. Now, the third one, redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. 
You see, this recognizes that there's dangers beyond the potential dominion of sin. You you can also be oppressed by other people, people who would oppose you and oppress you. And why did he want to be free? So that he could keep the precepts of God. He didn't want liberty from man's oppression simply so that he could serve himself, but that he could properly obey God. And then he gives a glorious final request there in verse 135, where he says, Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. You know, that is an experience or a quest for the experience of the goodness and grace of God. To know the face of God shining upon you means that you know you're at peace with God and to know that God is at peace with you. Can I just ask you that very briefly, very quickly? Are you at peace with God? And do you know that God is at peace with you? If so, then you know the warmth of his countenance shining down upon you from heaven. And there's nothing in life that can replace that. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of physical comforts. There's no human relationship. There's nothing on this earth that can replace that. The knowledge that you are at peace with God and that he is at peace with you because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Well, the final verse in this section is in verse 136, where he says, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Now, of course, this is a good example of poetic hyperbole being used in the Psalms. There were not literal rivers of water coming down the face of the psalmist. But but he spoke according to the literary style of poetry, right? We read this and we know exactly what he means, do we not? He's crying. His eyes are like faucets, so to speak. And there's not the slightest problem in understanding his meaning. He's weeping. He's broken. Why? Because men do not keep your law. He didn't sorrow over his own troubles, but over the sins of others and over the consequences that those sins would bring in their lives. You know, it's a legitimate thing to sorrow over the sins of other people. Not only to sorrow that they're sinning, but to sorrow for the damage that that sin will do in the lives of those people. As Jesus grieved over Jerusalem and over the hard hearts of the religious leaders, so the psalmist grieved here. Friends, before we just take a little break here in worship, before we start our next section. I think it's a pause for reflection, is it not for us? Listen, if sin has dominion over us, would not the psalmist weep over us? Wouldn't he look at our lives as people who do not keep the law of God and he would weep over us? Maybe you could think right now that if the psalmist knew you personally, maybe he would know you as someone over whom sin had dominion, that you could be set free by the power of God and by the message of God's word and what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Friends, let's remember that together. Let's say, God, show me. If sin does have dominion over me, I don't want to be blind to it. Let me know, Lord. Show it to me now and show me the path out of this to, to truly repent and to confess before you and to trust in your word and what Jesus did for me on the cross so that that dominion can be broken. Father, that's our prayer right here, right now.
we know, Lord, that there was one sinless man, that Jesus Christ himself, he fulfilled the law on our behalf. And so now, Lord, we want to look to him, the living word in our midst, and say, Jesus, set us free from the dominion of sin. This is something that you've given as a birthright to every one of your followers. But Lord, in all honesty, we have to say that not all are enjoying or living in the fruit of this birthright. So come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. And do this work in our midst. We love you. We praise you. Be our God here this evening. In Jesus' name.